Welcome to episode 12 of Behind the Mission, a show that sparks conversations with PsychArmor Trust partners and educational experts. My name is Dwayne France, and each week I'll be having conversations with podcast guests that will equip you with tools and resources to effectively engage with and support military service members, veterans, and their families. You can find the show on all the podcast players or by going to psycharmor.org forward slash podcast. Thanks again for joining us on Behind the Mission. Our work and mission are supported by the generous partnerships and sponsors who also believe that education changes lives. This episode is brought to you by PsychArmor, the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military cultural content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. You can find more about PsychArmor at psycharmor.org. This week, I'm having a conversation with Dr. Samuel Odom and Army First Lieutenant Marlon Dorch. Dr. Odom is president of the Board of Directors of the Congressional Research Institute for Social Work and Policy. He's an adjunct professor at Tulane University School of Social Work and a former professor at the Millie M. Charles School of Social Work on the campus of Southern University at New Orleans, where he served as faculty senator and faculty senate secretary. A native of Bruton, Alabama, he joined the United States Army in 1986 as a forward observer, field artilleryman, later becoming a logistician and ultimately earning an Army ROTC commission as a medical service officer, where he worked in behavioral health for more than 10 years. Dr. Odom served as company commander for the 377th Theater Sustainment Command and served over 24 years in the United States Army. He is a combat veteran of Operation Enduring Freedom and Operation Iraqi Freedom. First Lieutenant Marlon Dorch commissioned in 2017 and earned a Master in Social Work in the Army University of Kentucky program in 2019. He earned a Master in Education from Iowa State University in Educational Leadership and Policy Studies and a BA in Sociology from Norfolk State University. He is currently in the Army's Social Work Internship Program at Fort Bliss, Texas, under clinical supervision with the Senior Leader Sustainment Program at the United States Army Sergeant's Major Academy. Prior to the Army, Lieutenant Dorch worked in higher education as a student affairs practitioner, teaching and presenting at national conferences on politics related to race, gender, and identity. Let's get into my conversation with Dr. Odom and Lieutenant Dorch and come back afterwards to talk about some of the key points. Military social workers support behavioral health for service members and their families. And this role is taking on more prominence over the last 20 years, say, in the global war on terror. But social workers have been supporting the military for over 50 years. I'm interested to hear your thoughts on the state of the field of military social work, both from the perspective of someone who spent a career, Sam, and then from someone who's just emerging into the practice. Yes, as you stated, social work has evolved over more than 50 years, to, to believe it or not, from the social worker serving in a line unit, battalion, brigade, division, corps, and being embedded with those respective units. Over time, it is a history that captures the American Red Cross in terms of one of the very first institutions that was responsible for doing the type of work that Army social workers were engaged in more than 50 years ago. And of course, what we later experience is not only does social workers work in an army setting, but social workers also work in a Navy setting, as well as the United States Air Force as well. And in terms of the evolution with time, social work 
as a profession and military social work specifically is more of a microcosm of the world that we find ourselves living in as early as 50 years ago, but even today in 2021. And so definitely that transition from, as you said, maybe traditionally what the Red Cross does to now entering into what the actual field is. Marlon, you're just starting off in military social work at the beginning of your career. That's correct. So I'm currently a social work intern in the Army, and I'm finishing up the last bit of my clinical hours over the next few months. And I would echo everything that Dr. Odom just mentioned. I think that kind of where we are now is that we're still a small but mighty force. When you think about the Army, for instance, we have about either right around 300 social workers that are in our AOC. And so when you think about that, that's a really small number for the almost 1 million people in the Army. So we're small but mighty, but we continue to grow. Over the last few years, since about 2009, the Army has instituted MSW program in which I was able to direct commission into. And we continue to grow from there and we create our niche in various areas, whether that be in the Better Behavioral Health Model, Dr. Oda mentioned, so being at the brigade level. But we also show up in MedCom spaces. We show up as the Installation Director of Psychological Health. We serve in positions in the Family Advocacy Program. And so we meet soldiers where they are in many respects in terms of providing them the necessary care, whether that be in the ACS programs. Social workers really show up everywhere in the Army's environment. And I think that over time, we will continue to grow. And and in total in the military, I think there's right around 500 with the Army having the most and then the Air Force just at second and then the Navy kind of, I think they have right around 100 or maybe even a little less. And so I think the essentialness of social workers are there and it'll continue to grow over time. And and Sam, and and obviously, I think when people think of social work in general, maybe not in a military context, maybe the first thing that comes to mind is like child services or something like that. But as Marlon just said, there's definitely a clinical role as far as the embedded behavioral health, as well as more of the advisory and sort of the broader scope of systems work that social workers do. How have you seen that transition over your time in working in military social work? I think it's important to note that social workers are officers in the military. So we have to be clear about that. A social worker is not an enlisted personnel. It's an officer and more importantly, a staff officer who is an advisor to a commander. And so social workers play this role in advising commanders, as Marlon referenced, in a hospital, a medical center, that being a a medac, a clinic, a medicine, at these various levels. And and in terms of seeing patients, which is one of the clinical responsibilities, as well as serving as an advisor to a commander with regard to command-directed evaluations. So the role has changed over the last 25 to 50 years in terms of the camaraderie that social workers share with psychologists, psychiatrists, and I might add MFLAX, which are generally uh, a social worker, someone with a psychological background, or a licensed professional counselor, such as yourself. And so those roles, while they differ in some aspect, they also are very similar in that they are there to serve the family and the dependents, and more importantly, the service members with mental health and behavioral health issues. 
However, understanding that the key role that we must never lose sight of as an army social worker is that we are advisors to a commander. That commander, he or she can take our advice or he or she can say, you know what, I'm going this way. And that speaks to the relationship. But understand that's a position that hasn't changed. What has changed is some of the roles that social workers have played to include discharge planning, to include family advocacy in terms of serving as a chief of social work. Semantically, a lot of those things may very well still be in place. However, they are referred and identified differently. I I can definitely see that. Again, similar to a chaplain in, in the advisory role of a commander in these very specific areas. In and really there's this idea of having the clinical background, but also having the lived experience or, or the literal experience of being a service member. There's a lot of common experience among service members. We all know that cultural experience is different in the military. You just talked about how Navy and Marine Corps is very different from Army, very different from Air Force and so on. We're hearing a lot in the current conversation around the different experiences, for example, that women and men have in the military. It's important to understand that there are commonalities, uh, but that doesn't mean that service members are one large homogenous group. From your perspective, why is it important to have diversity in the military social work field in order to support that corresponding diversity in the service members that you serve? I was just having this talk yesterday with one of my classmates who's actually in the Air Force, who was a part of the first Air Force class that went through the Army's MSW program. And we were talking about different personality types and how we were kind of part of this small cohort of 24 students studying to become social workers. And we go out into the field and we have our own idea of what we think a social worker should be, what they should look like, how they should act, how the code of ethics functions. And you go out there and you see a wide variety of people. And I think what we both agreed on at the end of that talk is that there's a need for a different type of social worker for every type of service member that we have. And so I think when you think about women and their needs in the military, they show it very differently. I think when you look at the intersection of someone's identity in the military, they show it very differently. This past July, I was able to talk at the University of Texas at Austin hosted a a military behavior health conference, and we were able to talk about LGBT issues within the military population. And so when you think about someone who shows up in the military, they bring their whole selves with them. And it might be muted very early on in their career just because it's all about getting you acclimated to becoming that perfect service member for that branch. But eventually you show up. And so we need to have social workers that are available for you when you're comfortable enough to show up in that therapeutic environment and we can really tackle the issues that you've been facing your entire life, no matter what part of this country that you, you come from. And so the social workers need to be reflective of just that population. And so I think it's important that the diversity shows up in that way as well. And so just as we recruit from the entire population, social work, pop, we need to reflect that as well. So I'd add, Dwayne, to Marlon's response, the importance of diversity, we're at a crossroads, not only in the United States, but in the world. And post George Floyd's murder, we as social workers see very much the military, as I said early on, as uh, a microcosm of the United States, a microcosm of the world. And in doing so, that's essential to 
ensure that diversity is always at the intersection. Because if, in fact, we agree that the military is a microcosm of the U.S. and the world, then it should reflect that in its diversification within the rank and file. For example, in leadership, we should have more African-Americans, minorities in general, in leadership roles. And to be frank, in terms of the consult that is the 06 that reports to the Surgeons General, that has not always been a reflection of diversity. It's been anything but that. But over the last, let's say, 15 to maybe 25 years, we've seen some diversity in that seat. Because of the work that social workers do, not only as a civilian, but also in the military, we know that the military is diversified. And so in terms of the profession being diversified, a service member would certainly benefit by walking into a consultation room and being able to see a social work officer that looks like him or her. And so that's important to establish an alliance. That's important to be able to work through issues. That's important to be able to identify, to see someone who looks like you, and to also be able to share conversation in terms of being able to cope and manage any type of psychiatric or mental health issue that they might be dealing with as a service member by serving in the armed forces, whether that be the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine, Coast Guard. And I think that's really, there's these two goals of supporting the individuals in need, so the service member or their family, but also supporting the command. But really, if we're looking at the needs of the client, as you just said, it's very difficult for someone who does not feel that they identify with someone to be able to open up about some very sensitive topics. A helicopter is a helicopter, a knee is a knee. It doesn't matter whether you blew it out playing basketball or or jumping out of that helicopter. But when it comes to some of these concerns that we're dealing with, being able to identify with the person you're working with is one way to reduce that barrier to overcoming those needs. That's right. That's right. I think that you're you're spot on in terms of we can stretch this out to be more expansive. When you go to a doctor's office and you have that encounter with the doctor, there's a concept that we refer to in the profession as cultural humility, right? Cultural humility speaks to the idea that we as a provider don't have the answers, don't know all of the answers, but the answers reside with the patient. And so the patient should be in a position to guide, navigate, and shape their care. And cultural humility in terms of embracing and more importantly, understanding it would put us in a position to where we are able to do the one important aspect of our professional duty, and that is to listen deeply, to be able to understand that the patient is speaking to us and telling us what he or she needs, that be a service member, that be a dependent. But again, this cultural humility piece that I'm speaking of really is, I think, where the rubber meets the road in terms of understanding that we have to listen, but more importantly, recognize and respect that that person understands and knows what he or she might need in terms of services. Absolutely. And just to add on to that, I think this is where our own personal training as social workers come into play. And so sometimes, if depending on the environment you're in, there's not a lot of options for a therapeutic relationship. And so when you're in a garrison environment, there's typically a, a clinic that you can show up to. I always like to tell any service member that I'm working with, let me know your level of comfort. I do some type of check-in to ensure that I'm meeting their needs. But if you're in a deployed environment, you may be one of one or one of two. And so this is really when you have to rely on 
on that cultural humility piece in order to meet those patients where they are, or meet that service member where they are. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's important to be mindful of that in that sometimes it may just look like care coordination for that person. It may not always be that therapeutic relationship, but it may, may be making sure that they're getting what they need in that environment as much as possible and as much as you can coordinate for them. So even within that, there's so many levels of case management and, and services that we're providing as we move forward, even in these smaller environments that we may operate in. You know, I really appreciate that concept of cultural humility, but first there must be cultural awareness. There, there must be an awareness that we need to have that humility. And I think right. that's really some of these conversations we've been having. You're both working on a book, African-American military social work, lived experience from 1970 to 2020. Your goal is to present the perspective of African-American social workers related to their military service, as well as those challenges. And this seems to be a way to develop that first step of cultural awareness that could lead to that cultural humility? Absolutely. I think that this book is a long time coming. It is a work that was more so in response to one of my colleagues who actually wrote a book called Combat Social Work. And we quickly recognized it did not tell the story of African-American social workers in terms of being inclusive. And this book really highlights the life of a social worker and specifically, ethnically, if you will, African-American in terms of what it means to cope, manage, and interact in a force that wasn't always inclusive. Recognizing that one often had to have a meeting before the meeting to guide and frame what you will and will not do in garrison, in a deployed environment, and the like. And so this book, really will speak to experiences from the level of the company grade officer to the battalion, to the brigade, to the division. And we're talking from 01 to 06. And that is from company grade to field grade officer, a myriad of experiences that showcase how an African-American was able to manage anxieties, manage issues, manage family, manage all of the life forces that an officer has to deal with in terms of being an advisor to a commander, in terms of serving service members, in terms of deploying, in terms of, one, embracing the code of ethics for the National Association of Social Work, but also being very mindful that he also is wedded to the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And ultimately, he or she has to answer to a commander. And so we delve into these complexities and highlight what those complexities look like in terms of, as we often say, everything that goes into the wash will come out in the rinse. And so the final, how shall we say, product, I think will be a story that was long awaited and people will be able to appreciate the work and the contributions of more than 500 years of experiences from the level of a captain up to a field grade, senior field grade officer. And I think it's definitely a story that's existentially worth telling. 
Absolutely. I echo that. And I add that when Dr. Oda mentioned showing up in these places or having a meeting before a meeting and, and what that meant to create spaces of resistance so that folks can continue to be comfortable with themselves in this military environment, but also leaning on others to see how they were able to get through some of the challenges they may have faced. Working with command teams who are not particularly fond of behavioral health because of what they think that those actions can do. Not only that, but you have certain MOSs that are just not interested in seeking behavioral health because it could impact their positions and, and the work that they're looking to do, their warfighting positions. I think it also will talk about some of the operating in and within the system. And so how do you navigate these environments at those intersections of various identities, specifically that African-American identity? And then really looking at it from a narrative piece of being able to share a story that has not always had a lot of light shined on it. And so I think that this book will really take you through the motions of what it would look like in the day-to-day experience, as Dr. Odom said, at various ranks and at various levels and being a part of various command teams, whether you're in that force composition or that med composition, and how did you ultimately either wash out and decide that, hey, this, this working environment isn't for me, or how you decided to persist and ultimately retire from this system. But it definitely helps with developing a little bit of a blueprint or a a manual that you can go to and say, okay, someone else before me has definitely had this experience and let me see how they have taken a look at it. You even referenced that, Marlon, is that idea of being within the system that you're trying to impact. A lot of times, social workers or behavioral health professionals are are a little bit outside of the system in which they're trying to influence, right? Whether they're in child services or a client comes into my office, I am outside of their life. But African-American military social workers are within a system experiencing the system while they're trying to impact the system that they're trying to change. And so that's a little bit unique. It's very unique. And one of the cornerstones in that phenomena, if you will, is a term relationship. And so if you as a social work officer have a relationship with commanders, you have a relationship with your patient, you have a relationship with your command team, you're able to get things done. You're able to ensure that service member is at the center of what is best, as opposed to working for a command or supporting a command who does not believe nor do they have a relationship with behavioral health. So they're interested in mission and mission alone. And so I'm not interested in whether private John Doe suffers from depression or anxiety. I have a mission to execute and I want results. And so I want him or her back out on the front line. And so again, having a relationship with the command or command team, that commander will value your judgment and listen to you and say, you know what, Lieutenant Darch, Captain Odom, I hear what you're saying. I'm going to support that because what I am ultimately hearing is that Private John Doe is not ready to return to duty and come back to me when he's ready. You talk about that advocacy piece while you're within the system. I immediately thought of the new Army grooming standards and how that whole process just completely changed and how it's a little bit alarming to some folks, but recognizing that there is a need for change to allow people to have some sense of normality while they are operating within this system and thinking about how social workers, as you said, typically are advocating from outside of the agency and they're usually empowering their client or 
that system, the folks within that system to advocate for themselves. But social workers sometimes have to show up on those types of committees in order to really advocate for change, not only for themselves, but on behalf of the entire service, which can sometimes look like a, a lifetime for some. I spoke with one general when I was back home in the D.C. metro area, and he said he spent his entire career to change one policy that he identified very early on. And so this gentleman spent nearly 40 years in the Air Force, and it really goes to show how long it takes to move this system forward. And so sometimes it just takes a while, but I think that social workers also have to be in the fight and be able to not only see the change for their clientele, but also recognize what that means for them in being able to either maintain their career or deciding again, hey, this isn't for me and I'm not going to be able to make this a career because I can't handle some of the changes. And so it really does mean being on the forefront when you're a social worker, but also wearing the uniform as well. And so I think it's very necessary as I'm hearing the two of you Sam, from your experience, you've taken the ball fairly far down the field, but now it's Marlon's turn to pick that up and carry it even farther down the field. was having a conversation with a mentee the other day about where I was when he was, things are better now and things are going to be better when he gets to where I am and so on. And so that's really this sort of idea of carrying the mission on, picking up the baton. Hopefully we're not picking up from off the ground and hopefully we're passing it from one to another. I really appreciate both of you coming on the show. Sam, when can people expect the book to come out? Where can they find more about the work that you're doing? The book is expected to be released early 2022, late as January 2022, as early as December 21. And of course, the publishers, Cognella, in terms of looking at the work that I do, people can visit the website, Congressional Research Institute for Social Work and Policy, where I serve as chairman of the board, or at the Tulane University School of Social Work, where I'm employed as a social worker in academia. And I'm also on Instagram and, and Twitter. Very good. Marlon, I know that as an active Army officer, you're beginning your career. There may not be a whole bunch of websites maybe that you're running or anything like that. But if, and especially individuals who may be interested in getting into the military social work field, how could they reach out to you if they want to do that? I'm definitely Googleable. Marlon Dorch, D-O-R-T-C-H. I'm on LinkedIn. I'm on Facebook and some of those platforms. And so if there's any questions about Army social work from a very early standpoint, I'm definitely happy to help anybody who's looking to enter into the field, but also help others make connections. That's great. We'll make sure that the links to all of those are in the show notes. Thank you both for coming on the show today. All right. Thank you for having me. Thank you for having me as well. We enjoyed and hopefully we can return in the near distant future once the book is published. Once again, we would like to thank this week's sponsor, PsychArmor. PsychArmor is the premier education and learning ecosystem specializing in military culture content. PsychArmor offers an online e-learning laboratory that's free to individual learners as well as custom training options for organizations. The role of the military social worker is an important one, especially when it comes to understanding that psychological fitness is just as important as physical fitness. I served 22 years in the military, and even as recently as the mid to late 90s, any discussions around psychological fitness was about mental toughness rather than psychological health. 
and any disturbances in psychological health were addressed by the unit chaplain, if at all. If I think back on my career, I couldn't tell you where the behavioral health clinic was for my first three duty stations. After the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan began, of course, a lot of the psychological stress from combat, rapid deployments, even the overall stress of life in the military started to emerge. The first time I recall having a mental health professional assigned to a unit that I was a part of was in 2008, and that was at the beginning of the creation of the embedded behavioral health teams. This is completely from an army perspective, mind you, so it might have been different in other branches, but that was the first time that I remember that behavioral health was more readily available. Before the development of the embedded behavioral health clinics, you had to go somewhere else to connect with a mental health professional, or more accurately, soldiers avoided going somewhere else to connect to a mental health professional. Rumors about what happened when you go to mental health kept people from going there. You'd be accused of malingering, you'll be seen as weak, they'll take your shoelaces away, you won't be able to have a security clearance or carrying a weapon. According to a government accounting office report on stigma in the military in 2016, members of a focus group explained that the mental health clinic on their installation was only accessible by a single elevator in the main clinic. So everyone knew that whoever was waiting for that elevator is waiting to talk to mental health care staff. Members of that installation called it the elevator of shame, and nobody wanted to ask where it was, so they just wandered around. People avoid what they are not familiar with, so when military social workers became part of unit staff, they became as much of a part of the unit as the people who handled logistics, intelligence, or operations. This is a significant shift to focus on psychological fitness as much as physical fitness. It's great to hear that service members like Dr. Odom and Lieutenant Dorch are meeting those needs. The other point that I would like to discuss is the concept of cultural humility and cultural competence. When I discuss the need to be culturally competent with any population, I often refer to a framework from a 1995 book, Health Issues for Women of Color, A Cultural Diversity Perspective, edited by Dr. Diane L. Adams. Cultural competence needs to be seen as a continuum from basic cultural awareness to cultural competence, and that effort must be made to move beyond cultural knowledge to true understanding. According to Dr. Adams, there are four stages of cultural competence. First is cultural awareness, in that someone has sensitivity to and understanding of another culture or ethnic group, awareness that there are cultural differences that need to be addressed. The second stage is cultural knowledge, which is familiarization with select characteristics, history, values, belief systems, and behaviors of the members of another ethnic group. Sometimes people believe that having cultural knowledge is equal to cultural competence, but we need to move beyond just knowledge of facts. The third stage in the spectrum of cultural competence is cultural sensitivity, where someone has the ability to be appropriately responsive to the attitudes, feelings, and circumstances of groups of people that share a common and distinct racial, national, religious, linguistic, or cultural heritage. And finally, achieve cultural competence when they can function effectively and appropriately in diverse cultural interaction and settings. In their discussion, Dr. Odom and Lieutenant Dorch identified the need for cultural humility as a separate concept from cultural competence, but related to it. I reached out to Dr. Odom after our conversation for more clarification of cultural humility and how it applies to cultural competence. He said that cultural humility must work hand in glove with the spectrum of cultural competence. More importantly, one can possess cultural competence and lack cultural humility. Cultural humility is a way of interacting with others that is other-oriented rather than self-focused, characterized by respect for and a lack of superiority towards an individual's cultural background and experiences. Cultural competence can be seen as an endpoint to be achieved, but cultural humility is a way of interacting using cultural competence that maintains respect for the culture of the people we interact with. I think this is an important conversation to have regardless of the culture. 
women veterans, LGBTQ plus veterans, racial, ethnic, or religious minority veterans. Someone who is not representative of these groups can learn the cultural norms, but that does not make them an expert. Cultural humility is a way to demonstrate that. It's important to understand the unique experiences of all members of the military, and it starts with service members like Dr. Odom and Lieutenant Dorch telling their stories. If you want to learn more about how a veteran can tell their own story, check out this week's Psych Armor resource, the Psych Armor course, Telling Your Story. This course provides a compelling glimpse into the lives of four United States military veterans. Narrated by David Vibora, CEO and co-founder of the Adaptive Training Foundation and a former NFL linebacker, this course offers service members and veterans insight into talking about their military experience. So thank you for taking the time to listen to this episode. Make sure to take a look at the show notes, which you can find at psycharmor.org forward slash BTM12, as well as on the Psycharmor website. You will find the link to everything we talked about in today's show, as well as hundreds of online training videos delivered by nationally recognized subject matter experts who are committed to educating the civilian community about military culture. All of these courses are free to individual learners. Thank you for joining me on this episode and for continuing to join us on this journey. You wouldn't be listening if you didn't care, and it's that curiosity and passion for supporting service members and their families that we want to encourage and increase. Come back each week for another conversation, and make sure to engage with PsychArmor on social media to let us know what you think about the show. I'd like to express special thanks to Operation Encore and Navy Seahawk pilot Jerry Maniscalco for our theme song, Don't Kill the Messenger. This show was produced by Headspace and Timing, and all rights to the show remain reserved by PsychArmor. Feel free to share the show. In fact, we would like for you to do that, but make sure you let folks know where you heard it. Join us next time for another great episode. And until then, stay aware, get educated, and be well.